The American Council of the Blind presents ACB Reports, a monthly news magazine featuring topics of interest to people who are blind or have low vision. I'm Mike Duke. This month, meet talking book narrator J.P. Linton. Welcome to ACB Reports for October 2021. get started with a few announcements. Apple is working to return some Siri and email phone actions which were removed by recent updates to Siri. In the coming weeks, you will again be able to ask Siri to write, send, and check unread emails. Reinstating Siri actions to check call history and voicemail will take a bit more time, but will return in an upcoming iOS update. Planet Fitness, one of the largest and fastest-growing global franchisors and operators of fitness centers with more members than any other fitness brand, along with the American Council of the Blind, Paralyzed Veterans of America, and the National Council on Independent Living, which are collectively known as the Coalition for Inclusive Fitness, recently announced a commitment to expand access to accessible exercise equipment. To learn more, visit acb.org slash planet dash fitness. And Seinfeld, one of the most popular TV series of all times, is now available on Netflix with audio description. Learn more at acb.org. From the American Council of the Blind, you're listening to ACB Reports. Talking book narrator J.P. Linton of New York City has recorded talking books for the National Library Service for 34 years. His address to the 60th Annual Conference and Convention of the American Council of the Blind was entitled Master of the Spoken Word. Uh, Let me begin by uh, thanking the American Council of the Blind uh, Conference and Convention and the Library User of America for inviting me to speak at your event. It's an honor for me, and it's more than an honor, it's, it's a privilege. It has always been a privilege for me to narrate books for the National Library Service of the Library of Congress without question. And as you all probably know, most of the narrators began as actors, and I have always been an actor. I've never stopped being an actor. That's how we got involved. And I thought it might be interesting to talk a little bit about the process that we used to go through. And I've been doing this for a number of decades now. I'm not going to tell you quite how many, but it's quite a few. The reason that uh, the title of this talk I'm giving here is Master of the Spoken Word, those were words that were uh, applied to me by the first studio manager of Talking Productions in New York, who actually hired me. And after working with me for a number of years, he gave me such a wonderful review that my wife thought my website should be entitled Master of the Spoken Word. And of course, to be even considered a master of the spoken word, again, is something that I, well, I mean, I can't say for myself at all. It's just something that I've 
I've always done and I've always made a living at as an actor and, of course, as a narrator. Now, whether I'm not a master, I'm not so sure, but I do know something about words. So that's kind of the overall theme I'm going to talk about here in terms of what a narrator does and what an actor narrator does. An actor friend of mine, a Broadway actor here in New York, uh, said to me, JP, why don't you audition for the Library of Congress to be a narrator? And of course, I hadn't heard anything about it. And he had been accepted, uh, a wonderful actor. He is still active. He's a very senior actor now. His name is John Horton. And you, many of your listeners probably know John and his work. And he introduced me to Tony Henderson at uh, Talking Book uh, Productions in New York. My friend John Horton said, you know what? It's a gig between gigs. So every time you're, you know, you're, your play ends and you're looking for another job, you can go and possibly you will be assigned a book to narrate. Well, I thought it was wonderful. So I went and had my audition. And uh, it was more than an audition. Of course, we had to lay down five minutes of fiction, five minutes of nonfiction. And then, of course, we had an interview. Well, in the interview, I was asked, how many languages do you speak? Well, I had studied, uh, on a, even up in a university level, I'd studied French and I'd studied Latin. Well, that's very good, JP, excellent. How many university degrees or college degrees do you have? And again, I was sort of taken aback. I mean, for gosh sakes, I'm an actor and that's what I do for a living. But no, I needed to answer that question. I have two university degrees, an undergraduate degree in theater arts and a graduate degree in dramatic arts. And that was very good. All right. So then, of course, we have to wait a few weeks and the results come back. And other friends of mine who were even senior actors to me in a sense of length of experience, they had worked uh, at CBC Radio in Toronto long, long, many, many years. They had a lot of mic experience. I didn't have very much mic experience at that early stage of my career, but they were not accepted. And I was astounded, but I was, and I was thrilled and happy and started recording. Back in the day when it was all real to real studio recording, that continued until about, I'd say about 10 or 12 years ago anyway, and everything switched to digital. And some of the engineers who were working in the studios at that particular point uh, couldn't handle this, the shift to digital and had to retire. Well, not only has that shifted from digital recording in studio, now, I think partly because of COVID, but also because this is the way the audio business is going, home studios are where most are recording their audio books. And I've had my own home studio for many, many years. I recorded for Audible and other commercial companies. And then just fairly recently, within the past six months, the Library of Congress has accepted my studio. And so I record primarily now in my own home studio. I think one of the reasons that I was accepted as a narrator for the Library of Congress, besides my academic background, and my actor experience background was that I come from three Englishes. 
By that, I mean, I was born in Canada and I started my career in Canada on the stage primarily, and then film and television, a great deal basically in Toronto. But even before that, of course, I was born into a very, very Victorian English home. My mother was briefly married to my birth father at the end of World War II, but they split. And my mother came back from the United States and went to Canada where I was born, back to, of course, in those days, back to her parents' home. And my grandfather became my uber father, if you accept that German word for overall father. And my grandfather was a very, very highly educated, well-spoken military officer, educator, Victorian British gentleman. We would sit at the table, and I as a little boy, and we would be having conversations, of course, and uh, I would happen to say a particular word, and my grandfather would say, no, 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 it is not spoken that way at all. It is spoken this way. And he would repeat the word primarily with a Victorian British accent. And that was English to my grandfather, even though he had emigrated to Canada way before the First World War, to the point that he had educated my mother and her sister, my aunt, who spoke with English-accented English from the day they were born to the day they passed away. It was that impressed on us. But my mother said to my grandfather, no, he's not going to speak with an English accent. He's going to speak with a Canadian accent. So there's English number two. And of course, I was a, like every young boy, I grew up in the streets of Canada and I learned English from a Canadian perspective, of course, which is quite different in many, many ways, as is an English accent for English. It's quite different as well. So I come to the United States because my agent in Toronto at the time had said to me, after I developed quite an extensive acting career, he said to me, I, I believe you should go to New York. You're talented enough. You, you can make a living as an actor in New York. I recommend you do that. So a very short period later, uh, of course, I came to New York City. And of course, I am in the midst of American English. And by the time I get to narrating books for talking books, of course, Library of Congress, it's all American English, not British English. Not Canadian English, but American English. And I used to have spats with Tony, essentially my boss, the studio manager at Talking Books in New York. We'd have great discussions, if you will, about various interpretations. One example, the word in the United States for that wonderful Italian food is pasta. Well, of course, in Canada, it's pasta. You drive a Nissan you drive a Datsun, you don't drive a Datsun, you don't drive a Nissan, and you eat pasta in the United States. So of course, I had to learn all that. And, you know, you're brought up short very often, and you go, well, now, what is the American English word for that? Well, of course, I've lived in New York uh, City for many a decade now, and of course, I recorded many hundreds of books, and of course, I came to understand uh, probably 99% of how American English is pronounced. I think another reason that words 
for me became so wonderful. When I was in elementary school, actually it was about junior high school, we were doing a reading out loud because you used to do those things then. Maybe they still do in school these days. I don't know. But we were reading Shakespeare out loud and we were reading Julius Caesar. And my teacher was so impressed with how I read the words that he offered me the part of Brutus in a production of Julius Caesar was doing. And of course, I was hooked and I went on from there. And that became my life, of course. For an actor, words are everything. The interpretation of the word is everything. And that is what makes it so fantastic and fantastically interesting and inventive and creative. You have the writer who, of course, uh, dreams up and writes the words. And of course, the audience who hears the words spoken. And there's an actor in between that. And that is a very, very essential person, particularly in the theater or particularly listening to an audiobook. The actor is absolutely essential. Therefore, the actor's tone of the word, the inflection of the word, the syllabic emphasis of the word. You don't say humdrum, things are humdrum, things are humdrum. The emphasis, of course, on the first syllable. But then, of course, with all of the tone, inflection, and syllabic emphasis, there is the interpretation of what that word and that group of words is. And it varies enormously. And if the actor, the narrator, has any intelligence at all, he or she can give nuance, give interpretation that the writer never even thought of to convey to that listener. And of course, the actor narrator is a live conduit from the writer to the listener. And that means very often, of course, we as narrators, we get books that are not particularly well-written, I hate to say. For me, the great classics still remain the great classics. And there is a very, very good reason as to why they are classic in the first place and why they remain classics today. It is because there's never, well, I don't want to say never, but 99% of the cases with wonderful writers of American English like Mark Twain and Herman Melville and Theodore Dreiser and Edith Wharton and on and on and on. Of course, I'm mentioning 19th century American writers, but you'll never find a grammar mistake. So the interpretation becomes easy. You can read the material so easily and convey its meaning so easily because the grammar is so wonderful. And 99% of the time in those classics, there are no typos. But I can never say what book I'm going to get. We don't choose our own books to narrate at all. We are cast as books. And I had the great fortune at the beginning to be cast for some reason they seem to regard me as being able to interpret those 19th century classics. So the first book I was assigned to read as basically a youngish actor at that time was Edith Wharton's The Age of Innocence. I was thrilled by it, just knocked out by it. 
And then I was assigned authors of the modern era, uh, such as of upscale American writing. Louis Auchincloss is, uh, comes to mind as an example. And I spent a lot of time reading upscale American works. But then, of course, for some reason, they get in the head, well, this fellow JP, he might be fairly good reading detective novels. So I spent years, detective novel after detective novel after detective novel. And then for some reason, they thought I was fairly decent in terms of reading science fiction. So I spent years, and I still am assigned a lot of science fiction. But of course, as you get older and older as a narrator and more and more experienced, you are regarded as someone, again, who can handle something that the Library of Congress calls abstruse or difficult works to read. And there used to be back in the day, this is numbers of years ago, there used to be a contract that the Library of Congress handed out to the various centers that record books for the Library of Congress and the National Library Service called the abstruse contract. And nearly every year, of course, New York, I'm saying of course New York because the talent pool was the largest, was awarded the abstruse contract. So some of those abstruse books began to be assigned to me. You got paid a little more, which was exciting for us and helpful for us because the research process is much more extensive. The Library of Congress is, of course, the Library of Congress. You cannot make any mistakes in pronunciation. You are like a, a walking dictionary, all right? You must pronounce the words correctly. Basically, what that means is that every hour of recording takes at least an hour of research, particularly when you're doing nonfiction. Fiction, as well, there's no doubt, you're going to come across words that do exist, that aren't uh, made up as in science fiction, and you're going to have to find words that you've never seen before. And uh, that is something that we developed very strongly earlier on. Back in the day, before the internet, we used to have at Talking Books in New York City, there was what was called a proofing room, and there would be proofers who were hired to listen to the books and, and point out all the mistakes. But in the proofing room, you would sometimes be in your studio and you'd come across a word that you'd never seen before. You'd have to get up, go out of the studio, down to the proofing room, to the banks. Literally, there were banks, volumes of texts approved by the Library of Congress. Some of the following were the uh, Webster's Geographical Dictionary, Webster's Biographical Dictionary, the Lippincott Gazetteer, for anything that was very obscure in the world, but you had to pronounce that obscure mountain in Kazakhstan in the proper pronunciation, of course. I also have in my possession, I inherited when it all began to uh, stop being all book-based, I inherited a great big volume of the Random House Dictionary that I still have in my library here. Dog-eared and uh, the back is, is splitting off. But, of course, these books almost don't exist anymore because, of course, it all went on to the Internet. I have a BBC production guide, uh, a pronunciation guide, excuse me. Uh, we call it the Beeb. When you went to look up German words, we had a dictionary that the Germans call the Duden. 
And the Duden was a reference book that we had to go to. And of course, uh, uh, pour français, uh, for French, the very famous La Russe. And all of these we had to go to and consult. Now, of course, it's all online. There's a wonderful website that one can go to called One Look Dictionary. You'll put a word in One Look Dictionary, and it'll pop up all the dictionaries that they have reference to online. Merriam-Webster, Random House, Collier's, Macmillan, Oxford, the whole, the whole kit and caboodle. And of course, you have to look up the American English pronunciation because very often the British English pronunciation is given. And YouTube, and there's a site called Googlish, Forvo, Google Translate, etc., etc. Sometimes, of course, in books that you will get, you will get a multitude, and these would be regarded as abstruse. Uh, you will get a lot of foreign languages, you get phrases, you might even get a paragraph in Russian, Hebrew, what have you. Very often books like that would be given to specific narrators who come from a Hebraic background, or they come from, we even had a reader years ago in New York who could read Chinese. It was not Asian himself, but he could read and pronounce Chinese. So all of these uh, wonderful people that we used to sit in the green room and yak to that we don't have anymore, they were a bunch of wonderfully bright, good actor narrators. And they were a bunch of, we used to call ourselves the bunch of bizarros because here we would say, uh, we'd wander around. I remember once calling the French painter, I mispronounced his name in French, even though I've got a very strong French background. And one of the narrators popped and said, no, it's not Ang. It's ang, it's not ong. It was wonderful. We'd slap each other on the back and say, thank you very much, or maybe slap each other a little bit differently, but that's how it was. And then, of course, after all the time you finally recorded the book, what happens is that you get what are called, we used to call them corrections, but they're called pickups. And you get this, you know, we all go, ugh. But everybody gets them because you'll be reading along and racing along, and you might skip a word, or you might miss a few, or insert different words. And of course, again, the Library of Congress, all words have to be properly there, and every word the author wrote down must be properly there. I just want to give you a little example of a book I just completed called The Terroir. That's a French word in English. We'd anglicize it, call it terroir of whiskey. And it was a book about the composition of soils and the different compositions of soils, particularly to do with creating wonderful grains for whiskey. I'm just going to go to page 40 on my pronunciation sheet. And I do one for every, and every narrator worth his or her salt needs to have a pronunciation sheet, which you write down the word that you're questioning, you get a pronunciation for it, you write the pronunciation, what is known as the International Phonetic Alphabet, and you give a source for it. So that when the proofer comes along and sees that word, he's not going to challenge you because you've already got a source for that particular word. This is on page 40 in the Terroir of Whiskey, a book about soils for grains to manufacture whiskey. I'm just going to give you some words here. Isoamyl, phenethyl, methionol, Isovalorate, isobutyrate, butyrate, octanoate, hexanoate, just an example. 
None of those words. Even chemists themselves, if you go on YouTube, they will come across these words, even giving lectures, and you'll see a YouTube video, they'll come up to them and they'll stop because they don't know quite how to pronounce them. But we, as actor narrators for the Library of Congress, must know. The rewards for what I do are just, other than the few exemplary books, and I say few, that I've read and enjoyed. As I say, I've done hundreds, and it used to be a rule of thumb of mine. When I came across a book that I read that I thought was absolutely wonderful, I would buy it. Well, I hesitate to say how many books I have bought. I guess because my own standards are fairly high. My enjoyment quotient is also fairly high. It is like there used to be a wonderful theater critic in New York. His name was John Lahr. He was the famous actor, Bert Lahr's son. And he was a critic of New York theater. His book was called Astonish Me. And that has been my mantra for decades. I need to be astonished by the book I read in order to buy it. That is a plus. As I briefly mentioned about The Green Room, the other narrators I used to read with, that's a plus. But we're all at home now reading alone in our own studios. So that era has passed as well. The other reward is this. My girlfriend, a number of decades ago, and I were on a train going to the east end of Long Island. And I was talking to her. And as the train is going along, someone comes up to me, taps my shoulder, and says, it was a sight-challenged person, and said, are you J.P. Linton? I said, yes, I am. They were thrilled. They said, I have read all of your books, and I, I love your work very much. Well, my girlfriend, sitting beside me, thought I was a rock star. <laughs> so she ended up marrying me, and we've been together ever since. And uh, I don't think just because of that incident, but she reminded me of it. And there have been very many times I'll be walking along the streets of Manhattan, not necessarily with my wife or my son or anybody else, walking along with a friend and having conversation. And I've actually had the same thing happen. People come up to say, are you J.P. Linton? And I would say, yes, I am. Oh, and they were just so thrilled. That reward for me meant everything. It continues to mean everything. Hearing from the people who have read the approximately 500 books I've recorded for the last, and I will tell you how many years, I've been doing this for 34 years. When I hear from people that they enjoy, and I do get emails, there's no doubt, they find out my email and they say to me how much they enjoy my work. That is what makes what I do the most important reward. Thank you. That was talking book narrator J.P. Linton from a presentation made during the 60th Annual Conference and Convention of the American Council of the Blind earlier this year. You've been listening to ACB Reports from the American Council of the Blind. ACB Reports is heard on audio information services throughout the U.S. and worldwide on the ACB Media Network, acbmedia.org. Contact the American Council of the Blind at acb.org or phone 800-424-8666. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next month for another ACB Reports.